0: A pleasure to speak to you this morning. If you have a Bible, could you turn with me please to Matthew 22, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 34. Matthew 22:34. And as you turn there to Matthew 22:34, you'll find a short conversation, a short conversation between Jesus and a Pharisee, a so-called expert of the law. It's only six verses in length, and hopefully it will appear behind me, and we'll have a look at that in a moment. As Grant said this morning, our teaching season, or our preaching season, is called the commands of Jesus. And a few weeks ago, he asked me to preach, and he said to me, Patrick, choose a command and preach, and he walked off. And as he walked off, I thought to myself, the commands of Jesus, absolutely appropriate for Christians to attend to the commands of Jesus. Because in John chapter 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. He said that to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commands. So it's right that we attend to the commands of Jesus. But as I walked off, I thought, well, which command should I choose to preach on? Because there's so many. In the Gospels alone, Jesus issues some 50 commands. And I thought to myself, is there a sliding scale of importance in the commands of Jesus? What's the most important command? And as I thought that, I was led to the passage today. Because that very dilemma was put to Jesus by this Pharisee. The Pharisee asked him, what's the most important command in an effort to catch Jesus out? Could we look at the passage together? And if I could be so grandiose to give my sermon a title, I would say the title is what exactly does Jesus command us to do and how does he expect us to obey those commands? What does he command us to do? How does he expect us to obey the commands? So I'm looking at Matthew 22, verse 34, and it says in my, in my Bible, it says, hearing Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Sadducees, let me just explain very briefly, they're a political, religious group based in Jerusalem, and it's just been quizzing Jesus on the subject of the resurrection. And he had silenced them. His answer to them was so good, they'd stopped talking to Jesus. So, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and I pray this morning you would continue to open our eyes to the wonders of your law and help us to behold Jesus. Amen. Some context, that conversation, it happened in Jerusalem, probably in or near the temple courts. It happened in the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. In a few days' time, Jesus will be crucified. And the Pharisees, they had been pursuing Jesus for about three years, following him around Palestine, monitoring his every word. The Pharisees, let me tell you who they are in case it's a word that's new to you. They were a particularly unsavory group of people. They were religious, they were teachers of the law, they saw themselves as guardians of the Old Testament law, they had huge influence over the Jewish nation, political and religious influence, and they hated, and I'm not exaggerating, they hated Jesus. They hated Jesus probably for three reasons. They were jealous, jealous that the crowds were following Jesus and listening to his preach, Jealous, jealous that Jesus was expounding his talk on grace. The Pharisees didn't do that. They felt exposed, their hypocrisy felt exposed, because nothing reveals a counterfeit like the presence of the genuine. Jesus was the genuine righteous man. He showed up, their hypocrisy, they hated him for it, and finally... They hated him because they were afraid, afraid that one day, perhaps, he would lead a violent rebellion against the Roman army of occupation, the same army of occupation that had given the Pharisees their political clout, their political and social privilege. They absolutely hated him. So they followed him around Palestine, listening in to everything he said, to try and catch him out to try and get a little snippet that they could use against them. But they weren't only spies, they were murderers. Early in Jesus' ministry, way back in Mark chapter 3, we learned that they already had a plan to kill Jesus. They were murderers. So when this Pharisee steps out of the crowd in our passage to pose this question to Jesus... Jesus, who knew all men, realized, I'm not just talking to a spy, I'm talking to an assassin. An assassin. And this isn't a cozy Q&A session on theology. It's not a theology debate that we're hearing this morning. Because Jesus realized that if he got the answer wrong in any shape or form in the eyes of the Pharisees, that they might kill him there and then. That was the pressure that Jesus found himself under when he replied. In verse 36, look how the Pharisee, the assassin Pharisee starts his question, teacher, rabbi, a title of respect, a title of honor. But he didn't regard Jesus as a rabbi at all. He had complete contempt for Jesus, as did his fellow Pharisees. It was a word of flattery. Aimed to put Jesus at his ease, catch him off his guard. Rabbi. Then he asked this question. Rabbi, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And as he asked that question, you get the sense Don't you get the sense that he's sort of proud of himself, proud of his question? He's an expert. This is a hard question to answer. Because he knew in his head that there were some 600-plus laws in the Old Testament, 600-plus statutes. Surely, Jesus couldn't find the important ones from the 600 in the book. This could be the question that catches Jesus out. This could be the killer question. But look at Jesus' reply. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He simply quoted scripture. The first commandment comes from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6.5, and the second commandment comes from Leviticus 19.18, impeccable scriptural replies that the Pharisee could do nothing about if frustrated them terribly I'm sure just two commands not the 600 plus of the Old Testament not the 50 plus commands in the gospels articulated by Jesus just two commands don't you love summaries don't you love summary commands, only two I love summaries. I absolutely love them, and I tell you who else loves summaries. Our young people here of school age who will be back in school in a few days' time when the sun's shining. They love summaries. I can tell you as a former teacher how much they love summaries. When their teacher gives them five pages of detailed notes on a given topic, and then gives them a summary bullet point list that summarizes the five pages of detailed notes, Shall I tell you what they do? They file away their detailed notes in the ring binder. They put it on a shelf to gather dust, and they look at their summary sheet. They look at the bullet points, and they say to themselves, you know what? I can do this. This ain't that hard. This topic ain't too difficult. I can have a very good bash at this. That's what they think. Trust me, I'm a teacher. Now I wonder, I wonder if you're tempted to have the same reaction, a similar reaction, to our two summary commands this morning. I wonder if you're tempted to think, you know what, only two? I can have a bash at that. I can have a good go at that, only two, not the 600, not the 4 I'll have a go at that. I'll have a good bash at those two summary commands. Well, you know what I'm going to say next? If you find yourself thinking that, you run the risk of sliding into the classic believer's trap that we call legalism. Legalism. It's a trap that we all know is there. We all know what it is, and yet so many Christians slide into that trap. The legalist says to himself, you know what? I accept my salvation. I accept that I'm saved through the grace of God, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. My sins are forgiven. The slate's cleaned. I'm free to start again. And off I go in my own strength. And I'll obey those commands of Jesus. I'll have a good bash at it. And off they go. And they try their hardest. And even though they fail at times, do you know what the legalist thinks? The legalist thinks, well, I'm doing better than that, Christian, and I'm doing better than that one, and I'm doing better than that one. And then they compile a list in their heads of all the good acts that they do. And they think to themselves, come judgment day, I'm going to present my CV of good acts to the living God, and surely, surely, he'll be impressed by my good acts. That's legalism very subtle. Very, very subtle. And if I've just described you this morning, don't feel condemned because many of us have slipped into that trap, and I'm being included. I've slipped into the trap of legalism in the past. It's so, so subtle to slip into. But look again at the two commands of Jesus. These two commands I think are the ultimate cure for legalism. The ultimate antidote for legalism. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you hear what Jesus is asking us to do? With every part of our being, with our intellect, our mind, our thoughts, our imaginations, with our will, with our our physical bodies, with everything we have, we must love the living God. Always, And then, just to compound it and make it harder, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And maybe you think to yourself, oh, all of them. All of them all the time. Yes. Two insuperable commands. Two commands that we, in our own strength, we cannot do. And yet they are the commands of Jesus. And Jesus said... In John's Gospel, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. So what do we do? What do we do with two apparent impossible tasks to obey? Well, Scripture provides us with a way forward. Could I ask you please to turn to Romans 12, verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1. And we'll see how Scripture gives us a way forward. Romans 12, verse 1, Paul's writing to the Romans and he says this, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, let me read that again, it's a wonderful verse. Therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies, and the Greek is clear the word bodies doesn't mean your physical body it means your whole being your heart, soul, mind and strength your whole being offer your whole being as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God this is your true and proper worship so Paul has picked up Jesus' first and greatest command. And what he's done is he's prefaced it with the phrase, in view of God's mercy. So what he's effectively saying is, in view of God's mercy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In view of God's mercy. Can I ask you, Where do you find God's mercy at its most merciful in Scripture? Have a think. Where do you find God's mercy at its ultimate? I put it to you, it's the same place you find His love at its ultimate, and it's the same place that you find the ultimate expression of His grace. We find it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying in this verse, and he says it throughout the book of Romans, is that if you want to avail yourself of the power to start loving God, as we know we should love God, he's saying, go to the cross, go to the cross, meditate on what happened at the cross of Jesus Christ, for there you will be equipped to obey these wonderful commands. I wonder… I wonder if you've ever had the privilege of, of being in the presence of a world-class musician when they picked up their instrument and played, with the exception of Tom, okay? I wonder if you've ever been in the presence of a truly world-class musician. It's happened to me twice. About seven, eight years ago, I invited a violinist into the school where I was the head teacher. He came from the Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, one of the top orchestras in Europe. And the guy came into school to deliver a masterclass to our GCSE music pupils. And I slipped into the classroom because I'm a nosy head teacher. And the guy taught his lesson, gave some appropriate advice about their forthcoming exam, and then at the end, he picked up his violin, and he said, would you like me to play something? And we said, yes, please. He stood in the middle of the room. We gathered round. I don't know what he played. I don't know much about classical music. But my, what an experience. The music filled the room and literally took our breath away. It was an amazing experience. When he finished, we applauded. Everybody applauded like mad. That was the only fitting response, the only fitting response. No one was indifferent. No one looked at their watch and said, well, I've got a meeting in five minutes, no. We applauded and applauded, it was the only fitting response. Twenty-three years ago, at my mother's funeral service, my brother, Francis, stepped out of the pew. My brother is a top-flight musician, violinist. He stepped out of the pew, picked up his violin, and he played something that he had written for the occasion. He called it a Celtic lament. A Celtic lament. And he played a piece of music which again left us left, left us agog, left us astounded. It was so beautiful. When he finished, we sobbed. We cried. I cried. Everybody in the room cried because that was the only fitting response. No one was indifferent. It was the only fitting response. Now, as believers, as believers, when we draw close to the cross of Jesus Christ and we start to take in the beauty of God's love, mercy, and grace, there's only one fitting response. When we consider the cross, when we consider God who stayed Abraham's hand in Genesis 22, he stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son. But the father, as he saw his son climb Calvary's mount, stepped to one side and let his own son be slaughtered tortured, beaten, and then nailed to a cross, nailed to a tree to die of asphyxia, to die of suffocation. Jesus died of suffocation because the act of breathing or exhalation was simply too painful for a human body to endure. That's why he died. When we stand before the cross and we remember... that his spiritual torment was so much worse than the physical torment I've just described. Why? Because Jesus on Calvary's cross bore humanity's sin. Your sin and my sin. He bore our sin and the terrible wrath of God against that sin. The terrible judgment of God. Isaiah, centuries before, prophesied that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Brothers and sisters, he was crushed to dust. Physically crushed. Emotionally, psychologically, spiritually crushed. And we remember why he did it. He laid down his life in obedience to the Father, but he also laid down his life of his own accord. Why? Because he loved us. That's why Jesus did it. He loved us. Not that we deserved his love. We deserved his judgment. Because the wages of sin is death. Our sin deserved only judgment. But he died. He died to save us. And it was therefore all grace. Unmerited love. Undeserved favor. That's why he died. And then we remember... When he said those words, it is accomplished, which I think is a better translation than it is finished. What did he accomplish? What did he accomplish for you and me? The complete forgiveness of our sins. All of them, gone. Clothing in his righteousness. The righteousness that he had earned as a perfect man as he walked the earth. clothed in his righteousness. What else did he earn for us? He made us dearly loved children of God. Gave us peace with God, where we had enmity with God. He made us co-heirs with him. Co-heirs with the risen Christ. Co-heirs in his inheritance. Consider for a second, as we stand before The cross of Jesus Christ, what can the only fitting response be, I put it to you, overwhelming gratitude and love, overwhelming gratitude and love, generated by the Holy Spirit. And Scripture says, let that power, that love, that Holy Spirit power. Let that compel you to start loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Let that compel you to start obeying God. Not because you're a legalist trying to re-earn your salvation. Not because you're scared of God. You think He's coming after you with a big stick. We'll be God because we love Him. We can't stop ourselves obeying God. We can't stop ourselves obeying the God That we love and that we want to please. That's why we love Him. John Newton, that wonderful, wonderful writer of Christian hymns, says the following Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen His beauty, are joined to part no more. He says it so well. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. In John's gospel, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commands. As Christians, we know that, don't we? But we must never forget, as Christians, never forget. That if we want to keep Jesus' commands, we need to start by loving him. That's the starting point. Now, if I may, can I, share with you, can I share with you a tip? Okay, it's worked for me over the last few years. And I'm sharing it with you. You can accept it or reject it. Here's my tip. I make it a habit every day in my prayer time draw close to the cross of Jesus Christ, and I meditate on it during my prayer time. For it's there that I find the heart-transforming, spirit-filled grace that equips me for the day to obey the living God. Let me couch that in theological terms. Just as we go back, just as we went to the gospel, the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, for our salvation. I'm asking, go there again. Go daily to that same place for your sanctification. Honestly, it works. I've got only a few minutes left, folks, and I'm going to be very, very brief to say three things about the second great command of Jesus. Remember the second great command? Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to say three things. Number one, That command, that second command, will flow inevitably from the first command. Number two, in Scripture, when Scripture talks about your neighbor, it's invariably about someone in need. Number three, when Scripture talks about loving your neighbor, it usually involves something practical and generous. Let me back that up. First point. Let me back it up with scripture. First point. Loving your neighbour will flow inevitably from loving God. In one John four twenty one, Jesus spells this out. Let me just read it. You don't no need to turn there. Jesus says, or rather, the apostle John says, and Jesus has given me this. Jesus has. Jesus has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must love their brother and sister. Anyone who loves God must love their brother and sister. Now, that's not the must of obligation. That's not the must of legalism. What John is simply saying is, if you truly love God, you can't help yourself but loving your neighbor. It's inevitable. It will happen. Second point, The second point I made was that our neighbor is primarily a person in need. Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, as I'm sure you are, you'll know that God in the Old Testament says, I'm the God of the widow, orphan, alien, and the poor. He frequently declares that those are his concern, those people right at the bottom of the social and economic ladder. That's who God's concerned about in the Old Testament. Jesus picks up that idea in the New Testament. Jesus, in the New Testament, in Matthew 25, identifies himself with the hungry, the thirsty, the lonely, the naked, the sick, and people in prison. Let me read to you briefly Matthew 25, verse 42. Matthew 25, verse 42, Jesus is talking to a group of people who actually thought they were believers, and here's what he says, so Matthew twenty-five forty-two, he said this, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me I was sick and in prison and you didn't look after me and then further down he says truly I tell you whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do it for me Jesus has identified himself with the poorest of the poor third point Loving your neighbor should be practical. Well, we've already heard a little mini-sermon this morning from the book of James. Um, Liam, spot on. I'm I'm going to turn to James as well. Let me turn to James. Because James says that loving your neighbor isn't just about having a warm feeling on the inside towards your neighbor. It has to be practical and generous. James, chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. Here's what it says. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but there's nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? What good is it? The theologian John Stotts, a very famous Anglican theologian, said the following. He said, the Bible isn't asking us to make ourselves poor, but it does ask us to be radically generous. Generous with money, time, talents, resources, investing all those things and investing ourselves into the lives of our neighbors. So when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying, it will flow inevitably from loving God. He's saying, your neighbor is primarily someone in need, and he's saying, be generous, sacrificially generous. I'm going to pause there. I'm going to pause there and say that this morning we've come across the two great commands of Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know as well as I do that the extent to which we take those two commands, and there's only two, the extent to which we take those two commands seriously is the extent to which we transform ourselves, we transform our church, our community, our nation and beyond. Let me finish with a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for these two wonderful commands. And thank you above all else, Lord, that you give us the means, the means by which to start obeying those commands. My prayer, Lord, is that you would bring this people, bring us back to your cross again and again, there to find the resources that we need to live a life that truly honors you, the living God. For you are worthy, you are worthy, O God, of our lives laid down as holy and pleasing sacrifices. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.